This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jordi Alexander. Jordi is a poker player turned quantitative trader. While Jordi was trained in high-frequency trading, he also has a deep passion for macro and taking fundamental positions that computer models may disagree with. We take full advantage of Jordi's breadth of knowledge in this wide-ranging conversation. We first dive into the mysterious world of high-frequency trading and Jordi's experience at GetGo, Tower, and then leaving to build his own firm, Selene Capital. We discuss crypto's product market fit, how Jordi assesses the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the Bology bet, and more. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordi Alexander. So Jordi, I'm excited for you to join. The way this all started was around the Bology bet and finally getting to connect after following you on Twitter for a long time. But before we get to the Bology bet, you had a career history in high frequency trading, HFT. I think that for people in the finance space, they have a sense of what that is. Maybe they read Flash Boys or interact with firms like Virtu or Millennium or Jane Street. But it's such a dark art of finance where secrets are held and people don't want to share because so much money is being made. I think a fun place to start that I've always wanted to ask about is if you go back, whatever it is, two or three years ago, what people were doing, which at this point I'm going to assume is no longer the state secret level that nobody can share. Help me into the world of how do high-frequency traders make money? What are some stories of how this actually works? You have two parameters to make money in high-frequency trading. One is speed, like latency. It's pretty obvious. The other one is short-term prediction sophistication. So the level of sophistication is what's changed over time. And even the latency side, things are fought over first milliseconds and then microseconds and then eventually nanoseconds. So I've kind of gotten lucky in the sense I joined HFT about 11 years ago where it was still early days in a lot of ways. And you got to see the huge changes that have happened over the last 10 years. I joined it from Gecko, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was at the time the number one HFT prop firm. And I remember joining, not knowing much about anything, but whatever model I deployed my first week, you just put some random parameters and it would just make money. You just throw it in the market. I think I put some like FX model trading, like CME 6E, which is like the Euro USD. Just threw it in, made money. I didn't even know what I was doing. And they had such a huge advantage on the technology side, on the speed side, that anything remotely predicting correlated instrument you would just be first to get it. So you can imagine something like boom bubble shots, like the German bonds, the five-year bond versus the 10-year bond, you know, they're correlated like 90%, 0.9. So if you have a signal that just says, okay, if one moves up, then remove the other one, it just works if you're the fastest. Now, you know, over time, people start competing on speed and there's multiple avenues of speed. There's moving data between different geographical regions, 
So like New York to Chicago is a huge one. It could mean just within the exchange, just getting data from ES, like S&P into like NASDAQ. That's like another speed game. And people fight that more with like FPGAs. It's kind of custom hardware. So you can see over time, there's an evolving of microwaves and you kind of get things lasered off the stratosphere and these things keep going. The latency game is at some point getting to the laws of physics. It gets to that extreme. So then the prediction one, walk me through an example there where like, this has to be obviously an exchange trade or electronically traded somehow. So what you're saying is because you know a piece of information just a little bit earlier than something else that you're able to predict the move of a different asset class? There's pure ARB where you have the same instrument in multiple places. And that is just a pure speed race, microstructure race. And then you have what's more like stat ARB where things are 80% correlated, 70% correlated, sometimes lower, 60%, 50%. And maybe at some point to get a clean signal, what you have to do in age 50 is combine these things in a way that reduce noise and filters come into play or you start using linear regression methods with penalization. So penalized regressions are state of the art, let's say like three, four years ago. Now, as you can imagine, places like Citadel and Jump and these type of firms, they have a much more computer intensive process where they start with a million features, literally that many, because there's all these hyperparameters. So hyperparameters are ways that you can configure the same predictive feature but with different parameters, you can say like, here's a five second EMA one and a 10 second EMA one and a 20 second EMA one. Those are all different hyperparameters that ultimately give you a different feature. Putting millions of those into a big computing system and letting it do machine learning and creating the best fit out of those is what is currently the world-class way to do the prediction side. You were more on the prediction side than the speed side. Is that right? I have to always be on the prediction side because the speed side is a fickle mistress. You're number one, head of the pack, you make a lot of money, and then six months later, you don't have a business because somebody else just made a better mousetrap. Those companies tend to disappear after a few years, even though they can have huge years when they're top of the pack. So I've always focused on robust alpha. There's two elements to it. So one is signal. And the other one is your trading logic, what we call like order logic, especially if you're trading passively and you're leaving like resting orders in your market making. There's a lot of considerations like, for example, a simple one is your Q spot. If the books are thick and you want to have good priority, you need to join pretty fast and you need to manage your Q position. And you start modeling these things as optionalities. When you have a passive order, it's like you're writing an option to the market. You're just leaving it out there and people have the option to take you. That's usually a free thing that you're giving them. You need to get something in return. And usually that something is getting enough trading flow and crossing spread that you make a profit. So when you're doing these parameter models, I'm curious in your time in the business, the idea of like data mining or fit, like people would come up with all sorts of stuff and try to fit models for prepayment curves or yield spreads or changes. I've seen that stuff before, but the level of relying to put so much money at risk for such a small period of time, how did you test an idea? You just said the first time you put up a model, it worked. Tell me more about how something works or doesn't work. Usually you get a lot of trades in high-frequency trading. You might get thousands of trades a day sometimes, depending on what book you're trading. Even in production, you can see very quickly if something is plus CD or minus CD. So you don't have to wait months like you do with like a quantitative 
traditional strategy that has a sharp of 1.5. These things, if they work, they can have a sharp of 20, 30. They should not have many losing days. They might have a couple losing days a year sometimes if they're really robust. So you know pretty fast if you have an edge because even if you have a 52%, 48% advantage, it'll show itself after a thousand trades. Just to follow up on that point there of it works or you hear the stuff of these firms make money every single day. How fast does that edge get eroded? Like when you find something, how long does something like that even last? What's ended up happening in the high frequency trading world is that certain firms get entrenched in markets, in certain markets especially, where that advantage can last for many, many years. And at this point, you see a firm like Jump, for example, they're not letting anybody get near them. They've built a structural advantage in certain markets where for somebody to come in, they would have to invest eight, nine figures to get remotely close to them. And sometimes these firms get very aggressive with market share. I've seen cases like one of the trades I've done, just to give a story, I got fascinated with news trading. So trading economic events like GDP comes out or CPI comes out and then the market moves. Because I'm kind of a tourist in the high frequency trading world, even though it's been my whole career, I love the fundamentals. I'm an economics major, I'm not a computer science major. And I like to hear press conferences and Draghi Day was a very exciting day back when Mario Draghi was the DCB. Super Mario. Super Mario, very memeable character. So six, seven years ago, I started looking at economic events and high frequency traders don't, most of them, they just get out of the market when the event is happening because the market's going to go crazy and they can get run over. They don't have a prediction for it. And then they'll wait 30 seconds, one minute, they'll get back in once things quiet down. But I was fascinated. I was like, okay, let me actually try to get into this game. So I started talking to all these providers that give you like the low latency feeds and you realize there's only like three or four of them. Some of them are Bloomberg and Reuters, the ones that you would know. There's a few other ones that are a bit more specialized, I won't mention, but you get into deals with them and you pay them a monthly service fee and you get these low latency feeds of the number. And then it's your job to turn that number into an actual trade. So you start pre-configuring things and you say, okay, if CPI is expected at 2% and comes above 2.2%, then here's the 10 books I want to trade. And for 10-year treasury, I want to go 30 ticks through. And for equities, I want to go 20 ticks through. And you kind of design all these things. And what I realized is the people who are winning that game, because they don't want to allow others to get in, they will actively lose money by overshooting just that nobody can get a piece of it. So who's ever first to the punch will take the entire thing. Let's say the fair value is for things to move like 20 ticks. They'll just take 25 ticks so that nobody can even get a sniff of a trade that's profitable. And this keeps other people from investing money and trying to erode their edge. And you see a lot of this in high-frequency trading where people just try to put barriers up. Amongst the big firms, how much of it is like your Twitter handle or game theory of, now that everyone knows that the news data is coming out, everyone knows that if that information comes out and you had that in advance, you'd probably have some sort of structural advantage. So then it becomes a race for like proprietary data sources or either getting public data sources a lot quicker or alternative data sets that other people can't get their hands on. In that example, I see why people would be competitive, but how do people try to like fake each other out to make the other models think that something is happening when it's not? I wouldn't say like they fake the other person out. They're just so aggressive in how they trade that they will actively harm themselves in order to prevent somebody else from profiting. And when it comes to like the news trading specifically, that's gone through many iterations. The most interesting was during COVID, 
we had kind of like a really good setup. And then during COVID, because they didn't want people to be interacting in person, the treasury and the department of labor, because normally they would lock people up in DC. And as soon as like the embargo was lifted, people could like send it down the wire. They moved away from it and they started releasing things on the internet. And that completely changed the whole game. It became like a, who's got a 20 AWS connections that can ping from all the servers all around the world and see which one's going to hit first. It just changed the game completely. And these things evolve. If you have managed to be successful in the past and you have a big war chest, let's say you won the game last year, so you made $100 million, they will invest a lot of money in just keeping that edge. And it's hard for a new entrant to come in. And you see that with high frequency, even in crypto and things that are a bit more recent, where once somebody gets an advantage, they spend a lot of their money as CapEx just to keep that advantage. How do the firms handle the human talent versus the technological spend? So clearly they spend huge amounts of money on special hardware, telecom, the low latency stuff. But to your point, there's a physics speed of light thing that they're fighting against. Then they have data sources, trying to have proprietary lockup data or special or fast, so there's expenses. But then there's all of these really expensive developers like you that are sitting there that have intellectual property in their brains. How does that work? When you compare talent, it's all talent. Whether it's technology talent or quantitative talent, those two are different backgrounds usually people have, but it's still talent. It's 100% a 100% of talent-based industry. Like Even when you think about microwave towers, who's going to build you the better microwave tower? It's the guy who's more talented and really understands the really fine details of these things. It's all about the minutiae. I've been building a high-frequency business for the last seven years, and talent is everything. That's where it goes. Now, if you don't have the budget of a big player and you have to be nimble and smart, then you start tapping into more like quantitative and potentially alternative data sources that you find a niche that you can defend. And it's all about creating a moat. And for us specifically, I would say we focus on order logic and passive order management and having a much more complex and nuanced system for providing liquidity to markets than a place like Citadel who focuses on just the pure signal and the pure alpha prediction. Very few people seem to leave high-frequency training, and when they do, they seem to retire at a young age because it's known to be one of the most high-paying parts of Wall Street. But you chose to left and start your own firm. So how did you come or decide to do that? I worked at some of the like, really big places that were top of the game in HFT. It's an interesting funnel there because the owners of these places still get the vast majority of the profit. That's kind of how it's structured because they have the technology advantage they've already invested in. So I'm quite entrepreneurial by nature, and I wanted to be on the other side of that and build a business. So taking all the learnings I've had you know, in terms of market microstructure and really understanding what it takes to have a sustainable edge, I've kind of been lucky in my career. Like I've had an opportunity to trade many different asset classes. So the advantage that I've built up in my head, it spans across everything. And now we do a lot of crypto HFT, for example. We find that we have quite a big advantage there because the Traditional firms like Jump and Tower have what it takes, but then everybody else doesn't. So we have very few competitors that are technically savvy enough to be world-class. One thing in doing research on you that I thought was interesting was when you've talked about GetGo of having like this centralized, best-in-class technology platform that everyone got to use the magic centralized software. And then at Tower, you guys were all siloed and you were given insane data, but you had to build your own tech stacks. So I think those are two interesting models. And then you went off and started your own company and you had to make decisions like this. I'd be curious to compare and contrast that because I feel like 
all investment firms or even lots of firms go through this phase where they say everyone gets their own quant developers. People build very custom bespoke stuff. Then some CFO comes in and goes, this is ridiculous. Let's centralize all these resources. And then it goes back. It's a pendulum for bigger firms like where I came from. But I'm curious, in those two high-frequency firms, how did you compare and contrast centralized versus silos? And how did that impact how you built Solidity? So when you deal with high-frequency traders, and I guess traders in general, incentives are everything. How they think and function and like when they're going to have a coffee during the day and when they're going to go to the bathroom, all these details come down to like how you incentivize them. And I saw both extremes. When I was at Gecko, the firm doesn't exist anymore. And part of the reason why, even though it was so much ahead of the game and went from that to like being absorbed into Virtu and being out of the market now, at some point, the traders were not being incentivized properly. And they were told that all the advantages coming in from the system and not from them. And it was partly true. Like I said, I came in as like a freshman one weekend and I was making tens of thousands of dollars a day doing random stuff. And it's true. The technology advantage was something that they had built. And I couldn't claim it as, oh, I should get a big bonus because I'm deploying all this stuff. But what they start telling people every day is, hey, like everyone who's tried to leave has failed. You should just be kind of grateful that you have a seat here. And here's like your measly bonus that my whole team would maybe get like one or 2% of the PL. So like imagine the entire team getting 2% and then the management getting 98%. That's not very sustainable. And then you go to a place like Tower, where what Tower did extremely successfully, and they were really the first firm that got all this talent from all the other firms and told them, look, like you get a percentage cut. And that was quite novel at the time. Now it's very standard in the industry. When they first started doing this 15 years ago, it was extremely enticing for equity traders from SockGen and for people from Gecko and other firms to just say, okay, I'll give it a shot. And if I can get 40, 50% instead of one, 2%, that's a good risk reward. What you did lose out though was at Gecko, all the firms, traders were sharing knowledge and it was a bit more collaborative. At Tower, while I worked there, everyone is in a different room and they shut the door really tight, make sure nobody can hear you as they're walking past, even though you're in the same company. There is this culture of what are they doing over there and trying to like figure out how to catch up to other teams that are maybe doing better than you. So it's a very different culture. When they do these siloed trading firms, how do is risk and capital manage? So you're in your box over here with your like soundproof cube and then a team across the hall finds the same thing just randomly, which then increases the risk of the firm. Who's sitting there watching and playing with those levers? They do have like risk officers that are responsible for doing this. They have 30 teams to manage. So sometimes simplicity is what they look out for. They will leave scraps on the table and they won't be trying to maximize as long as they can keep things orderly. Often they won't be trading aggressively enough because they don't want to give a team too much risk in a certain place. It's a very tough job to be the central risk officer, but they'll have a guy that has to determine everyone's risk limits and it's a tough job. And sometimes it'll be a few people doing that. And how competitive were the teams with each other? How competitive is it like tower versus jump or tower team one versus tower team 30? So it changes over time. I think tower is one of the reasons they still are around and I had a good experience there, so I don't mind praising them. Eventually the very successful teams became partners in the firm. Again, going back to incentives, they said, okay, yeah, you're getting 40%, whatever of your team. 
but we'll also give you a small cut of all the teams. You're telling the really key people that are the most successful that they have upside on everybody, even if it's just small pieces. And that kind of opens them up and they want to share a bit more with the other teams because, again, it's all about how they optimize their objective function. So that was the very good. I think Jump is a little bit different. They have this famous team, the founders team, like JCS, Jump Core Strategies. And that's a huge team. And it's become like a firm within a firm, almost. Different model. At that model, they just have to pay people very well because there's no percentage cuts. It's all discretionary. So as long as they keep making multi-billions of dollars every year, then they can keep their talent. And they do have amazing talent at both these firms. From thinking about those different structures where you worked, how did that shape your thoughts on how to structure your own firm? So I'm not going to try to be like a thousand person firm and go after every possible trade under the sun. You have to start very small and bootstrap things. And initially, I didn't have a team. I was just one person and a developer. We built a system. We got pretty lucky. Our first trade just worked trading two-year bonds, ZT on CME, and used that money to hire the next person, the next person. And it's been many years of bootstrapping. And at this point, it's a very strong team. We have certain niches that we have an advantage in, especially on the passive order management and like market making side. Other people have a niche in specific type of technology. So there's firms that have specialized in FPGA, for example. But like I said, those ones usually don't exist. So they go away after a few years. For us, it's a long-term advantage we're looking to build. I think crypto is one place that we're focusing on as being a new space that is not entrenched. Because if you try to trade treasuries, for example, those lines and those specific relationship with exchanges and the fee deals and the structuring on margin and everything else has been optimized to like the nth digit. We look for like a bit more open field opportunities. Starting a company is hard as hell. Starting a high frequency trading firm seems like a whole special task because of how specialized and entrenched and maybe the costs are. I guess I was surprised to hear that you made the first trade in two-year treasuries. Is it just that the edge you found was too small of a capacity for the major firm? There's a skeptical side to me that's like, how the hell do you compete with these firms by yourself with a developer? Can you explain more about the two-year trade or just in general, why is there edge left when these firms have so much capital and resource? All you need at the end of the day is you need to surpass them on talent. And I think the developer that I had found to kind of help me build out at the time, I had worked with some of the best developers in the world at Tower and Gecko, and I thought he was just one click above them. So I latched onto him. Like I'm not a technologist myself. I'm very much on the trading side. I'm a pure trader in every sense. So it was a very good relationship because I just fully trusted them on the tech and they just fully trust me on the trading. We're not trying to double guess what the other person should do. And I think I'm maybe higher than the bar on trading and he was higher than the bar on dev. We just made it happen. I think talent is the most important thing above the resources. So you're doing two-year treasuries. You're thinking about asset classes. When did you start thinking about crypto as an asset class to start making markets in? So it was fixed income for a long time. My background was initially fixed income. I was the most successful team at GetGo, which was like the fixed income team. So I'd seen that trade very well. When we went to Tower, it was again, focused on fixed income and we were very successful at bootstrapping that. So when I saw a trade to start with, it was always going to be fixed income. Trading stirs though, trading like rates curves and trading like the entire Euro dollar from our market. Now it's SOFRs, but that time was Euro dollars. Mechanically, it's very difficult. You have to trade 20 instruments plus the spreads between them. And you have to risk share everything. And you have to have your second factor in the steepening. And sometimes you get these weird kinks. I remember 
one day, just at the end of the arrival or trading contract day, somebody had a fat finger and you have this three month futures that keep expiring and you have maybe 20 of them over like the next five years. And for some reason, the 13th future just completely blew out by like 20 ticks or like 10 basis points while everything else around it just stayed the same. So it was this absurd kink in the curve that was basically telling you in two years, the ECB is going to raise rates at that specific time, which of course, nobody can know. Like It was completely absurd. The problem is it kept going and going. And at some point we were marking down like seven figures, which is a huge drawdown to have in high frequency trading. Cause usually like you're just making a little bit of money every day and you just have to switch off the system and hope that you don't get blown out margin wise, because it's obviously going to come back. But when you're trading something like a curve, you have to be prepared for a very advanced risk management system. So we started with a two-year treasury because it was a single instrument, pretty straightforward, just easy to get going. And then crypto came about more through, I would say, hearing about it. People that I knew had friends that were trading crypto. And you could just hear like every day, like the volumes going up and up and up. And it just seemed that every trading firm should at least give it a crack, give it a shot. So Tower was one of the ones that was very early at this. I had heard from some ex-colleagues that Tower was doing extremely well. The numbers were like mythical. I mean, when they had the whole market to themselves, they were making billions of dollars in crypto. So it was a very large percentage of their profit and maybe still is, I don't know, the most recent. So I put a couple guys and just said, let's move you guys to crypto and see how this goes. And eventually most of the team transitioned to that side. What year is this as you guys are moving to crypto? This is 21. So we missed the 2020 party. So we started 21. Problem was, it's a very long time to develop things when you're doing C++. And there were a lot of crypto firms that were just using Python or Rust, which are a bit easier languages to quickly develop something. So while we were plugging away, trying to get the microseconds figured out, these guys were having like huge success by maybe being slower, but being faster to market. So we kind of missed a lot of the 21 party as well. As you started to meet some of the other firms and actors, so like Alameda is a big firm at this point, what was your take on them? I mean, I know that although it's hyper secretive, I'm sure in that community, you know, the other firms, you knew the jump people, you know, the Jane Street people, what was your perception of the trading firms as you entered the crypto side? My perception was there's two categories. There's TradFi and there's crypto native. And being from that world, I knew that eventually the TradFi is going to win. They have the deeper understanding. And once they really build things out properly, the guy who wrote a Rust or Python-based system is just not going to catch up. So places like Alameda, there's a ton of other firms that had a lot of success early on. Not having that pure TradFi pedigree and trading system, will eventually going to get caught up. And now they're all gone. None of them are really able to be profitable compared to the firms that you would know anyway. So that was pretty evident to me early on. I think a lot of them could retire though, because they had such a good 2021 being early to the market. Many of these, let's not call them mom and pop shops, but let's just say like five, 10 guys in a co-working space. Many of them managed to make, you know, 50, hundred million dollars. And that money's not around for them anymore, but they can definitely retire on it. What was your take on Alameda? Do you think it was a firm that was actually making money? And then I know this is all speculative, but I'd be curious because lots of people guess on it, that they were making money, 
got into a hole and then just turned bad? Or were they never making money at all from the beginning and it was all just a complete sham? I've talked to traders from there since. They seem to have been making money in certain trades. I think some of their trades went wrong, but they had categories of trades. I think you know they had four or five different categories of trades, whether it's OTC or DeFi or different trades. And some of them were extremely consistent. It's possible that some of the discretionary trades went pretty bad. And it's extremely likely that they didn't have a technological advantage because it was 12 people doing 50 different things. And I know what it takes to actually be profitable in high-frequency trading. And you need a very large team of proper developers. You can't just have a bunch of kids writing some Python code. But I really think that they had an advantage at DeFi, for example, and they kind of threw it all away for just greed, maybe. Yeah, you talk a lot about that. How big is your firm? Between 30 and 40 people. And how much of that development, how do you think about the proportion of talent? Maybe because I am such a pure trader, I've always tried to hire only people that are great technologists. Like they all know how to code. Even the traders are amazing coders. So we have core devs that don't do any trading. And then we have everybody else who's, let's just call them quant devs. And that's a more accurate representation of what they do. And back to that thing of like collegial versus that confederate model, which model do you lend more to? I mean, you're a pretty big firm right now. Is that all just one big team or do you separate it? It's all one big team. It takes a lot of positive culture building to make that work. I've been on teams that have been underpaid. I've been on teams that have been well-paid. I've kind of seen all the different models. And I think I've found a good way to balance out incentivizing people. And you could say I'm more on the generous side and I want everybody to share on the spoils. And I'm happy to take the hit myself if we have a bad year. Some firms will just not pay bonuses. That's pretty common. If you have a bad year, I'll take the hit myself. And that's part of, I think, what keeps us very close as a team, that they see that this is not a player versus player system. Did it change at all going from the trader who is generating the alpha to both a trader and now running a business, how you thought about it? Do you ever think like, oh, there's a system we've built? Like if you're the 41st trader to join Sleedy and you think you deserve something, obviously all those people before them built something that they get to ride on top of. Did that change your perspective for when you were working at the firms? Yeah, you see the other side of it. And you have the same conversations that you had as a trader where like the trader will come to me and say, you know, the PL I made is like X. Why am I not getting like a big chunk of that? And then you have to explain to them, we have 20 developers working on this to allow you to have this edge to then like be able to make that much money. So a lot of deja vu there and a lot of full circle. But given that I've been on both sides, I think I can communicate very efficiently and clearly to them and just make them go through my thought process. Like, hey, we have these costs. We have people costs. We have technology costs. So you see the top line number, but you forget all the pieces that go into that. And in the end, we actually reach a very friendly agreement where we say like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. If I pay you 10% of your PL and the rest of it is going to your 20 colleagues that have built everything, everyone's happy. So it kind of makes sense. Are you guys a fund or is this proprietary capital? How do you think about your investors? Is that part of the equation? We have proprietary capital. We have a shop of 36. So we have one losing day every couple months. So when you take outside money, like LP capital, you're doing it in order to be able to take more risk and write out the down months and then size up. In high-frequency trading, especially in our space, which is like the ultra-high-frequency trading, you're not so concerned about that. The capacity is constrained. We can't size up infinitely. So generally, 
you don't take LP capital. It's extremely rare in our part of the market to take LP capital. Sometimes you do take GP capital, like equity capital, kind of like a startup does in order to hire more people and spend more money up front. But we are proprietary right now. We don't have any investors. And is it now 100% crypto or are you still doing fixed income as an asset class? We still do both. Crypto has been the area of growth, but somehow I have models that I built seven years ago, just at the very beginning. The very first models I built still make money. And don't ask me how that's possible. I'm definitely going to ask you why. I have no idea. I built some very basic things that have been working every single day for seven years. And I thought the market would erode these because they're not even being maintained. These are just strategies trading certain contracts, high volume contracts, and they still work. So we still run a bunch of stuff in TradFi. That's like what I think is happening. You have a skyscraper and then you have another skyscraper next to it, but there's like a road between them. And you're looking at the skyscrapers. You're saying, look how high jump has built up. And then across the street, you have Citadel and wow, they've gone up 80 floors. And you're like, how are you able to get any sunlight? How are you able to compete? And what I've realized is the people who work at these firms, they all think in a certain way, like they're all quanti, MIT, computer science, and they approach problems in the same way. I am not like an HFT trader, like I should not be in this industry. I just randomly fell into it. I had no technical background whatsoever. I have a poker background. And I came in and the way I approach the market is so different than all of them, where I came up with things that seem very obvious to me, like very simple things, but they just don't think that way. They think in a very different sense. So they're building and they're competing in verticals that I'm just in the middle and I kind of fall through the cracks. And there are certain ways of thinking that I realized early on they were not capable of because they're not structured that way. And it's not anything complicated. You not being from that computer science background, if I tell you what those alphas are, you'll think it's obvious, but I think that's the reason. Can you give me an example? One, not obviously one that's going on today that you're relying on to have such a high sharp ratio, but can you give an example of one that used to be that is a way of your thinking that's different than the skyscrapers? When I first started at Catco, they had a set of models and the models are all trading with like a five, 10 second time horizon. That's how they're built. That's what they're looking at. But I would notice certain consistent patterns that would maybe happen at like a minute time horizon. And certain like reversions would happen that were very predictable, but within five seconds, the model is already out of the position. So for example, like if you're trading US versus Europe, German bonds versus US bonds, I would notice that they would start to like catch up to each other, but it might not be in five seconds. It might be like over minutes. What I did is I copied all the models. They have these configs with all their like little coding parameters and everything. I made an AB test and I said, I'm going to run the B completely separately than the A and I'll manage it myself and I'll try to catch these reversions. And I did it for several weeks and consistently it was making, let's say 50% more money by catching these reversions. So that's an example where like the people around me thought I was crazy. Why are you intervening? Just let the model do its thing. They can't even see what I'm seeing. But for somebody who is more technical traded, it would be very obvious, but they're not sitting in my seat. They're not at a high frequency trading firm. I was uniquely positioned, let's say. And so how do you handle that today? Do you have the team trust the models or are people intervening and biasing models? We sometimes have systematic ways to put biases in. I don't want anybody to do what I was doing. I think very few people are capable of doing that. And I want to have all the focus on scalability. 
So in terms of us as a firm, we don't do any manual intervention unless it's like a very unique spot. For example, a month ago, you had USDC depegging. So like Circle, like the stable coin in crypto was falling from a dollar to 85 cents. And that's definitely a situation where it's okay to intervene manually and say, okay, like this is going to repeg. So we want to take advantage of that opportunity. One thing you do on Twitter, which I enjoy is even though you're high frequency, you clearly enjoy philosophizing about macro and having a view of where things are going to be. And you put them out there very publicly, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, like everybody. Where's that come from versus the high frequency side? Because usually I feel like, although I love the intersection of quantitative and fundamental myself, you're usually in one world or the other. Where does that side come from? That's, I think, where my edge comes in is that I could see both sides. Usually when you're dealing with fundamentals, you either have somebody just sitting around click trading something, or you have what's called like systematic macro or systematic quant, where they try to build like a longer term model for this. I find everything fascinating. I love understanding money, like central banks and actually how they manage money so much. That's actually what really kind of got me into crypto was thinking about the alternative currencies that are possible and what society needs in order to start using them instead of like a central bank currency. So for me, I like to see the bigger picture. Quantitative is the tool and fundamental is what gives you direction into which part of the market you want to tackle and even understanding things like central banks and how they start raising rates, cutting rates could have avoided a lot of the crypto collapse that we saw. Like zero interest environment is not something that any crypto person that was buying crypto punks and all these things was thinking about. But let's just say they've been forced to realize that that is the bigger stick in the market. Maybe that was probably an interesting time to get your perspective on the market. So behind you is the dog and the fox parable. Explain to me how that relates to your view on crypto over the long term. The dog and fox parable, you know, Greek mythology, you have Laelopsis, like mythological dog, and he was an incredible hunter. He always caught its prey. And then there was a fox called the Tumesian fox, and this fox could evade everybody. So it's the saying of like what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. In Greek history, Zeus just kind of broke them up and made them into star constellations. And these are the constellations that we call now. But for crypto specifically, I see like two huge forces. And one is the desire of people to put money in digital coins is massive. Like they keep just buying any coin, doesn't matter. There is a huge demand for storing wealth in these tokens. It seems like it's human nature for billions of people to want to buy these things. And then at the same time, you have the reality, which is most of these tokens are just random, useless pieces of code that don't actually provide any value. And these are two extremes. In terms of crypto, I think ultimately the way that that paradox gets resolved is people do eventually find a way that the money that they keep throwing into these tokens makes sense. I think we eventually do get an international currency that is used across the world for people to put money in. Now, whether that's Bitcoin or Ethereum or in the future, maybe something else, I think those things have to be figured out and we'll see over time exactly where that lies. But it is very clear to me that no matter what regulators do, no matter what the Chinese government bans mining and does all these things, you can't avoid the fact that at this point, I think it's been proven that there is a product market fit that is undeniable for digital tokens. Is it just greed 
is that the product market fit that you're kind of describing? Is that that human nature is that humans are competitive and that wealth is one of the things that they fight over quite a bit. And therefore, this is a frontier that people think they can play with it. It really is the dollars being associated with it, the lines of code. It's not like people actually want to own random coins. What they want to own is the opportunity for great returns. It definitely is a part of it. Playing the lottery, this type of thing, where like maybe you hit it big. I think there's other parts of it. For example, the reliability of just having a self-custodied wallet with your coins in it has a lot of advantages over having other parties custody your bank account. Being able to send your friend in a different country something instantly is obviously better than going through the traditional system. And then part of it is the imagination, I think, of giving these tokens a personality and an emotional attachment that you sometimes see people. When you talk about psychology and group psychology, we're all cavemen. We're kind of used to having a clique and having a certain coin that your group is supporting. And anybody who attacks that coin is like an enemy. I've been on both sides, right? Like I've actually spoken against certain coins and I've had huge communities of thousands of people start just attacking me on Twitter and trying to dig up every little piece of information they can try to find online to make fun of me or whatever. It's a very emotional subject. So I think it's fascinating. It does tie into the need for survival. And every single day in crypto, what I'm thinking about is Darwinianism and what human behaviors are naturally arising from people's intuition and survival strategies. It comes down to different survival strategies. And I respect everybody who exists in the world because we've all had to come down through thousands of generations and our parents and grandparents, everybody had to find survival strategies. And you can see like, there are some people that are very beautiful, but they're not very smart. But that was a survival strategy because they're attractive. And then you have maybe people like SPF. He's a very smart person, but not a very attractive guy, but he had a way to have a survival strategy. And I respect everyone's different survival strategies. It's interesting to see them in action in crypto though. I've been thinking a lot lately about games. I think it was Paul Graham had a tweet and he was like trying to protect this attack on AI. And he said something to the effect of finance people have been raised in a zero sum game, but technology is a positive sum. And it was just trying to like paint this dark versus this light thing. It just stuck with me for a while. And I started to think a little bit of it was bullshit that a lot of games are zero sum, even though they want to be described as positive sum because people don't want to be attacked because they've won the game, that this competitive nature in humans is to play games. And gambling is one of the favorite games that people want to play. There's a quote that I love, the gambling known as business looks with austere disfavor upon the business known as gambling. My friend always tells me that because when I was a kid, my father and my grandfather talking about stocks, I bought my first investment. I was, this is just gambling. You're just betting against what other people know. No, 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 no. This is a company that builds stuff. This is IBM. I'm like, but everybody knows that. What you're betting is that the future is going to be some path against other people. And when you go through that cycle of investment, it starts to look very similar. People think these are such diametrically opposed worlds of like, we're betting on a Pepe coin today and a dog coin tomorrow. And it's so foolish. It is. But I also see the same foolishness in equities. They're intertwined. There's this meme, the Trojan horse getting pulled in. And on the outside, it's like crypto market. And on the inside, it's a new financial system. This is Matt Huang from Paradigm who made this meme to point out that it looks like crypto is just a bunch of people gambling, but what we're normalizing in society is a completely new financial system. 
And when I saw him, I actually said, look, there's no inside and outside of the horse. These are the same thing. The new financial system and the gambling, it's all the same thing. <laughs> like It kind of just merges when you look at it closely. So I fully take your point. And I think people can say that after one year, it's an investment or after six months, it's an investment. It's not a trade. These are all areas of gray. And I think, unfortunately, we're in a spot where everybody has to make financial decisions for themselves, even on your personal money. Even if you're not managing other people's money, you have to still manage your own finances. And for people who are not sophisticated, like my mother, for example, had to decide which bank to put her money in. And I'm from Cyprus. She put her money in a Cyprus bank. And one day they just decided they're going to bail in all the money to cover the expenses of the bank. And she wasn't sophisticated enough to kind of maneuver that and understand that. Sadly, in the world, like even unsophisticated people do have to make financial decisions and they're gambling, like they have to gamble which bank and how you treat your money, even if something looks safe. Unfortunately, it's all still gambling. What do you think about when someone comes to you, you always have a background, so your friends, family ask you, maybe your mom, what do you think about the exposure for people that are interested in crypto? Do you tell them, own something and just forget about it? Don't get involved unless you have a team of 40 developers to trade very quickly? I say like buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think like those two things are very, very undervalued, like hugely undervalued. I think everything else is overvalued. The reason other stuff is overvalued, you have a bunch of VC money that's being dumped into like new projects and it's chasing very few good founders. So everything's overvalued. You have funds that are trying to charge fees by investing in outsized returns. Like you hear like multi-coin talking about trying to find outsized returns. There's too much money chasing outsized returns and anything that has a whiff of real return, like a staking derivative or something like that, is still overvalued because there's too much money trying to chase those few legitimate investments. However, Bitcoin and Ethereum are two things that they have potential as being money. We fall back into this concept, but I really do think that there is a chance for both of them to become a store of wealth. There's millions and millions of people that transact in these things and that think that they have value and they've been around for many years. I think they're hugely undervalued. Now you can say like markets are efficient. Why doesn't the current price reflect the fair value? The reason is these things have a very limited supply. Ethereum now is deflationary. Bitcoin will soon have a very, very tiny inflation. And as more and more people accumulate coins, at some point you just run out of coins and you get a very exponential sudden like move in price because there's just no coins left. If somebody wants to start buying a thousand Bitcoin, the people that already own them might be very unwilling to sell them and there's no miners creating new coins. So I think both Bitcoin and Ethereum having like a 10x move can happen very suddenly in the next five years. Where we all started on this Twitter chat, do you think that we're going to get the uh, Bology bet you want to dive into? I don't know how many days left we have before Bitcoin's supposed to hit a million, but I think he was doing it to make a point more than he was making a bet. But what's your take? I respect Bology as a thinker. And I think during COVID, he came up with some very insightful takes. I don't think that he understands microeconomics very well. He make some assumptions that is normal to make if you're not really deep in the space. And even sophisticated people make, make assumptions. Like, you know, the dollar milkshake theory, people thought the dollar's strength would get out of control, especially during COVID. They thought that there's just not enough dollars to service the debt. And so like dollar will go exponential. What you realize is the Fed can just change the rules. They can suddenly start creating credit lines with all the other countries around the world and give them dollars. And suddenly there is no scarcity of dollars that completely changes the paradigm. So I think Balaji is kind of guilty of falling the same mistake of just drawing straight lines and forgetting that when it comes down to it, you know, 
people can intervene and they can change the rules of the game. So if the banks are insolvent, they'll just bail out the banks. Like that's kind of what they did. <laughs> They've done that already. They'll just buy all the treasuries at face value, even though that's kind of creating a little more inflation. And he thinks it's going to create hyper, hyperinflation, but that's not how things work. When you look at it from first principles perspective, there's a limited amount of goods and services in the world. And then you divide that by the dollars being spent on them. And that's the price. And ultimately, for this thing to go exponential, you need the supply of dollars to 1,000x. And they're not going to 1,000x it. They're just going to increase it on the margin. So we're not going to have a million-dollar Bitcoin in the next 90 days. Will we have it ever? It's unlikely. When it comes to society, I think what matters the most is fairness. We're just individuals trying to treat each other in a fair way. And society needs to be built on inequality, not becoming too extreme. And the problem with something like Bitcoin is when you start having million dollar Bitcoin, if somebody has 10 Bitcoin and everybody else has like 0.1 Bitcoin, suddenly you've created a huge disparity in wealth and how we divide between us the amount of goods and services becomes something that is not sustainable. Like you have the king of France getting beheaded and you have the French Revolution, all this stuff happening because of this exact reason. So I think digital assets can 10x, but in terms of reaching a market share that eclipses other assets, I don't think that the tolerance for inequality will allow that. So I have to kind of keep that picture in mind. So when you think about that, of like a future world currency, is it your belief that it's going to be a third new thing that's distributed in some more fair manner? Yeah, I've thought about this philosophically and there's very few ways to create money that is fair because ultimately you have this seniorage effect. And when you talk about Cantillon, for example, whoever's closest to the money creation usually gets very wealthy. So, you know, if it's the president or the dictator in that country, Erdogan or Putin or whatever, they become billionaires, trillionaires, these people. So if you want to create a world currency that is actually fair in terms of how that money gets created and who's earning it, I think you need to do it in a very social way where it's almost like charity. You're kind of giving away new money for causes that are good for everybody. It's hard to imagine right now, obviously, like I'm not talking about socialism versus capitalism, but what I am talking about is when you are creating money, if you want society to accept it and you want it to be globally accepted, the way that the seniorage goes has to be very inclusive, even to the point of charity. So I think it's going to take many decades before something gets designed properly for that. But I think that's the eventual outcome. Yeah, it's hard for me to figure out a system because even if you gave everyone on the planet an equal amount, once the game starts, that's a good starting place. But because of those competitive forces, the money and power eventually is going to concentrate with people that are playing the game in a different way. Yeah, I'm not talking about like UBI in the sense of airdropping everybody the same amount of money. I think some altmen maybe had that thought world coin experiment where he's going around the world trying to scan people's irises and then possibly give them like a UBI airdrop. I agree with your take that that would ultimately just end up in the same system. Somebody would go to Africa and find like 100 people who got an airdrop and just exchange it for some food or something. And then he has 100 coins. So I'm thinking about it more in terms of if we're going to create money, it's going to go towards social goods and services that are helping the entire society rather than giving it to like individual people for them to spend. There's more of an asset versus a currency, unless over time there is a usage to it that people start to create some sort of liquidity distribution mechanism. On regulation, obviously with 
FTX and some of the other issues that happened in the space, there's a need in some level of regulation, but there's this idea of overregulating. And I would say the crypto industry view is that the US is now reacting in a way which is giving international players, as someone who is, I don't even know if you're based what country you are, but I know you spend time in different countries. I'd love to get your perspective on how you're thinking about where to locate your business, you know, finance in the US versus finance abroad. There is definitely like some international game theory involved in terms of the US versus the rest of the world. And right now, I would agree that the crypto industry has shown that it is unable to control itself and discipline itself in terms of bad actors and fraud and things like that. So the regulators potentially have a way to help and create standards and create transparency enforcement. But at the same time, there's other battles being fought. And when it comes to central banks, they hate crypto, right? Like they hate having a competitor. You don't want to have another hot girl in the room when you're trying to get the guy. So when you're competing against the dollar, you even saw Hillary Clinton recently say that Bitcoin, I think she said specifically, is a big threat to the US dollar and the reserve currency. And that's a problem. And I think she's right. Like ultimately, these forms of organization, because crypto tokens can be a form of collective organization, we all keep a ledger, we keep track of who owns what. Ultimately, that forces central bankers to not screw it up because if they really go too extreme and they have a really bad policy and inflation gets out of control and they're kind of directing resources in the wrong place, we're starting to build a semblance of another system that can compete against that. And people can opt into that one and start exchanging goods and services with each other without using central banks. So it is a threat for them. I think that's the reason for a lot of the attacks from politicians, even people like Gensler. But the United States is fundamentally a libertarian society. Like It's kind of built on many principles that want to allow freedoms. And there will be a backlash against what Gensler is doing. There's also an international opportunity for even countries like China through Hong Kong and Dubai, the Arab Emirates, other countries to step in and really be that center of innovation. And like I said, it's clear to me that there is an unstoppable force of people demanding to buy these tokens. You can't stop it. People really want to do it. That's obvious at this point. I think the United States is risking falling way behind. I think seeing Gensler get grilled in Congress gives me some hope that you know, these things will moderate and they won't go too extreme in that direction. Otherwise, I mean, for me, I live outside the United States and I want to be a part of the crypto industry. So it's definitely easier for me to do that from outside. So I spend time in Singapore and Cyprus and UK and other countries. I do visit the US and I hope to continue to get the politicians and the regulators to be more aligned. And I think it would be good for everybody. What do we want to do? We want to stop North Koreans from stealing all the money. Nobody wants all these hacks to happen where Russia and North Korea are taking people's board apes and selling them for Ethereum, which eventually ends up in some like nuclear weapon. We're all on the same page on that. We don't want fraud. We don't want less sophisticated family members to get hacked. We just need sensible regulation. And I think we'll eventually get it, but it could be a few years and it might take a different SEC chairperson. Yeah, I agree with you. The point you made about it kind of having this libertarian upbringing of property and freedoms to me feels like it's going to end up in a court case. And maybe that's the right place through the precedent of court because we're talking about property ownership and government takes of different assets and taxation. Like Ed's founding before we were on the air, we were joking about tea and it's hard for a Boston kid to drink tea for a specific reason that you might think it's the stupidest thing in the world, but it's my American right to do the dumbest thing I want because I have those rights. 
we also believe in protecting people who don't get like the SEC's core mandate. I believe in. I do believe people should get disclosure. I want to stop scammers, but to create Gordian knots that can't be solved and then throw it back on the industry is just not a place to be in. I worry too that it hampers the growth, but it does seem like eventually we'll find our way through it. Yeah, there's a middle ground and I think we'll eventually bounce back on both extremes and find that middle ground. So Jory, the way we end this podcast, you can take it either way as a person building a firm or as stuff you'd like to invest in. What are you most excited to build or see built over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built or build yourself over the next six years? In the short term, like next six months, I'm excited about decentralized exchanges. I think after FTX and seeing all those tokens get slim and no accountability, there is no reason not to have a lot of these things happen on chain where they're verified. We don't need these like centralized exchanges. There is just no use for them. I'm excited to see some of the decentralized exchanges that we've been supporting that are being built start to take some of that market share. I think right now it's about 10% market share for decentralized exchanges versus centralized. I would love to see that go more towards 50-50. And I think some of the new exchanges that are coming out could start to fill that role. Over the next many years, what I would love to see is some clarity on how we're organizing ourselves as a digital society in terms of tokens. Like how do we treat Bitcoin? How do we treat Ethereum? Right now it's all a mess. You have Dogecoin, you have Shiba Inu, and people are trying to store wealth in all these coins. I would love if like the philosophy level gets raised and people start to have a clearer sense because it's a total free for all right now. I mean, no one is stopping anybody else from trying to make a new currency and get people to buy it. I would love to see a world where we just have like one or two of these, whether it's Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then everything else gets treated more as kind of like an investment that has a certain purpose within the ecosystem. It's going to take maybe like more than five years, but I'm excited to move more in that direction. And part of how I use my Twitter and, and my voice is to give some of these like first principles approaches to money and like how we treat value creation and try to organize our collective society to let's just figure this out. I enjoy the time today. Jory, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. It's been fun. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 